As promised, I am thrilled to announce that our tickets for Australian True Crime Live are now available. Join me in Sydney, Brisbane and or Melbourne this July. You can come to all three if you want. These tickets are expected to go very quickly, so be sure to secure yours by visiting the link in our podcast bio or you can head over to the Australian True Crime Facebook page. There'll be a nice link there for you. Update for Brisbane Australian True Crime fans. Brisbane is almost fully sold out for our live show. If you've been a listener for any length of time, you'll know how passionate I am about true crime stories from Australia. I'm looking very forward to an incredible evening together with you, sharing these captivating tales. We will have great guests as well, so, you know, we love a Q&A. If you've ever come along to an Australian true crime live gig, you'll know we love a Q&A with our guests. Don't miss out. Book your tickets today, and I'll see you in July for a memorable night out. 
We've spoken at length in previous episodes about the challenges faced by the communities in the valley. The main issues at play are related to the electricity industry, which was privatised in the 1990s. It was the main source of employment in the valley and has never been replaced with anything else. Residents are still impacted by negative health outcomes related to the thermal power stations in the area, though. They're exposed to high levels of pollution from open-cut coal mines, for example. The Department of Health reports a lower life expectancy for males born in the area than the Australian average, and at school entry, over 15% of children in the valley are developmentally delayed. Belinda Murphy was a 21-year-old single mother of two in 1997. The father of both of Belinda's children was living in Perth, but he was still legally married to her sister Katie. Whatever negative impact that had on their relationship was over by June 14th, when the two sisters pooled their resources so they could hit the town for a rare night out. The Latrobe Valley is small enough that you can catch a taxi from town to town, And on that Saturday night, the plan was for the sisters to travel to a party in Taralgon and then on to a pub there. Katie had two children of her own, so she'd organised a babysitter to stay at her house and watch over all four cousins. Earlier in the day, Belinda's new boyfriend, Greg Damasevich, called and offered to have her youngest, a 14-month-old little boy called Jaden, to his house for a couple of hours in the afternoon so she could get ready in peace. Belinda readily agreed because he'd successfully babysat Jaden before. She packed a shopping bag with nappies and clothes and anything else she thought they might need. And Greg came over around midday, picked them all up and dropped Belinda and her daughter at Katie's house and then continued on with Jaden. The plan was for him to deliver Jaden back to Katie's later in the afternoon. Before they left, Belinda called Greg around 4pm because it had grown cold and she was worried she hadn't sent warm enough clothes for Jaden. Greg said not to worry. He was just about to give him a shower and drop him around at Katie's. This is Australian True Crime with Michelle Laurie and Emily Webb. Come with us as we go beyond the news cycle to find out how people become killers, how people become victims and what happens next. As the young women headed out for the night, all around them the valley was doing what it does. And in Melbourne, veteran journalist Michael Gleeson was doing what he does, which I thought was always sports journalism. That's what he's famous for now. So I had to start the conversation by asking him how a sports guy ends up writing a book like the Jaden Lesky murder. Oh, the simple answer is I wasn't a sports writer then. I was actually a, I was a crime writer, and I, I ended up in sport because um, it, partly because I spent a couple of years on the Jaden Lesky case, and uh, I'd spent a few years uh, writing about crime and misery. And really, in the end, I just thought, do I want to have my life surrounded by that? And you know, you go to sport, which has always been a passion, but uh, sport where a bad day is someone does a knee. And uh, what I found in crime was that someone's worst day was your best day because you actually got something good to write about. And that was just an awful feeling that you were sort of 
excited when there was news come through that there was a murder or something like that. And it's, it's awful, but that is what you are reporting on. And so the, the sort of weirder case became more compelling. But they are the other side of that is that they are incredibly compelling stories. They are human stories. And, and the, one, the, the thing about this, so, so to explain how I ended up being there and doing it, I was actually a crime writer at the time for the Herald Sun. And I had a tip off that there were these drug raids that were going to happen all through sort of Gippsland, South Gippsland. And so myself and a photographer, Daryl Gregory, headed down there on the Saturday night, knowing that these raids were going to happen Sunday morning. The raids did happen. They didn't catch anyone. For some reason, someone was tipped off or whatever. But when I was down there, then um, one of the coppers said, yeah, you might want to head to Maui. There's a kid missing and, yeah, there's a pig's head in the front yard. It's like, that sounds like a story. So uh, we headed there and, um, yeah, lived there for the next month, really. I think you are the first person I've ever met who really did leave crime reporting. You know, like everyone talks about that, I think, and everyone talks about having breaks and mental health breaks and, oh, and then I go home and read about something else. But I think you're the first person I've ever met who really did walk away and stay away. Like, that's a long time now. Yeah. You never went back? Well, I cover sports, so I haven't completely walked away. No, but you walked away from crime. You really That's what it. I mean. I haven't really walked away from crime covering <laughs> There's a lot of drama in sport. There's a lot of correlation, isn't there, with sport and crime? It's sort of just only because of the human passion and drama. Uh, yeah, and in recent years there's a the, – I mean, the other thing – and look, I don't always be facetious, but um, the other thing is that, yeah, criminals are actually attracted to footballers and, and yes. they are attracted to the money and the celebrity and, and footballers are – risk-taking personalities they're also sort of attracted to nightclubs and and the uh and the you know the guys that are hanging around there with the money and and splashing the cash and so there is a crossover yeah we had Susanna Lopez on not long ago who who's just written a book about that and I was kind of peripherally aware of the connections but when you really sit with her and she talks you through the number of cases where sportsmen find themselves caught up in crime it's, it's extraordinary hmm. isn't it oh and you look at the match fixing overseas yeah. you know, that's where it comes from the nightclubs and it's flick them drink cards and then it's money and money and then they're asking for tips on what's going to happen with the pitch and what's going to happen this and yeah you know, so it 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 circulates. Oh, and listen to Andrea Rule's podcast about the racing industry. That blew my mind because I don't know anything about horse racing, right? And I was like, wow, that's incredible. Yeah. So the month in Maui, again, something I did not know about. I'm from Queensland, not long in Melbourne. When this story happened, I did not know anything about the Latrobe Valley. Did you know much about the valley at the time? Uh, I did. My family had come from Warrigal, which is just outside the valley. My father had grown up there, so I, I had been and spent time down there at grandparents and that, but Maui's just sort of that bit further on into the valley. And look, having written news and that sort of thing through that, you were aware through the Kennet period that there'd been the, the privatisation of the electricity and industry, and um, particularly down there. So it just meant that it was incredibly hard hit economically. The number of houses that were empty, there was a an area down there, they, they call it the Bronx in Maui, and, and basically they, they were old SEC houses that had been abandoned because the workers had been laid off and they'd, they'd left town. You could go there and buy a house at that stage for under $30,000. You had a lot of socially marginal people collected in one area and economically disadvantaged. But the story of itself could have been really simple. It sort of peeled back the blinds to this whole world and life that was down there and this sort of culture, subculture there that you just don't really either know about or, or care to know about. And uh, it was the most sort of riveting element to it. 
was always like a punchline, wasn't it, Maui, about mockies and moccasins on everyone. Yeah. It became a real character in this story too, because people in the suburbs were really shocked at how people were living. And especially I recall all that talk about how could she leave her baby and go out drunk, how irresponsible. But, yeah, I just remember that kind of overtook a lot of, as we've said, you know, the fact that a, a baby was missing. You know, the first thing that people connected to is, okay, they've all got a, sort of weird spelling names. You know, there's Belinda, um, B-I-L-Y-N-D-A, and that's because her mum wanted a boy called Billy. Well before the zeitgeist, yes. may I say. And, and I say the same for myself. I changed the spelling of my name in Year 9 Geography, which would have been about 1987. Right. Well before the zeitgeist. Yes. Uh, trailblazer. Michael. Yeah, trailblazer. But, but even the, but, you know, the spelling of these names was well before it was fashionable. So in those days, everyone very quick to jump on and go, who are these people? Yeah, yeah. And it was part of the negativity around the story. And very quickly the victim in this case was lost. That's absolutely true. And um, and he was lost throughout. Like yeah, yeah. from day one, it was about the pig's head, and it was about the uh, Kenny Penfold and these guys that threw the pig's head. And then it was about the fact that um, Jaden's mum is also his aunt, you know, yep. and his, his dad's also his uncle. So because his his dad remained married to Katie when having children with her sister. So, yeah. you know, that became sort of hard to get your head around and, and it sort of raised the idea of well, what's going on down there. So as you said, we find out, okay, there's a child missing, but there's a pig's head on the lawn. But then very early on, police say, we don't think they're related. And when yeah. the rest of the country's going, what do you mean? How can, How can it not be? two things happen in one night in one house? So talk us through how then it unfolded from your perspective. You're a journalist who finds out, what do you mean they're not related? How do you report that to us? How are you finding out day by day from that? Yeah, well, I mean, fundamentally that that point of that hurdle, that mental hurdle to get over of saying this was not connected was one that the jury couldn't clear and that fundamentally it always raised that issue of doubt through the entire case. It's like, you can't tell me that that isn't connected. How is it so coincidental that a baby's left behind in the house, a pig's head's thrown in it, the baby disappears, it dies, and it's not connected? I mean, what world are we living in? No, I just, there's too much doubt there. So to backtrack to that, to your question, um, we arrived on the morning and, yeah, there's a kid missing, baby missing, and the mum had been off in Trelgan. Um Belinda had been out at a party at Ryan's Hotel with her sister, they are not social drinkers. They are drink-to-get-drunk uh, party girls. When when you get out, when you get the reins are released, you go hell for leather, and there's, it often ends in a fight and quite drunk, kicked out of the pub, and that's sort of what happened on this night. So she was out. The baby was left with Greg. Greg's her boyfriend at this stage. Greg was a weird guy, but all of them are sort of weird in, a, in an adolescent, stunted maturity sort of way. They're all stuck as 15-year-olds playing pranks at, at high school, but in their 20s, and... Like, he used to keep a bucket of fish heads and guts in it, like one of those plastic builder's plastic things, and he'd keep it in that for his enemy. So what he would do is, if he wanted a prank, he'd, he'd get a syringe full of that fish guts and, that and, and inject it into, like, a, an air conditioning pipe so that it then blasts through your house and you couldn't get the stink out, which is quite an in, inventive sort of prank and a malicious one. <laughs> and the father of Belinda's child, Brett, is living over in WA. Her daughter, Brianna that day was being looked after uh, along with her sister Katie's kids at Katie's house. That was where Jaden was supposed to go at some stage during the afternoon is to be dropped over with the babysitter there. 
My understanding was that the reason that Belinda left Jaden with Greg was that Jaden liked cars. Was that part of it? And that Greg even said, leave him with me. We, he's fun. He likes being with me and I'm going to work on the car and he's a boy and we'll, we'll do car stuff. There was a, yep, there was a lot of that. It was more so from Greg saying, little man, the little man, you know, make a man of him, sort of he needs to be around cars and right. he liked having him around and someone to muck around with. So, yeah, that was why. And he was comfortable there and he stayed. And mm. She dropped him there with a, a plastic bag full of, you know, some clothes and nappies and, and yeah, he stayed there. But what always struck me as well, there was this desire to look after the kid but not, not actually care for him. Like, during the day, they didn't eat. He, he admitted afterwards, oh, he sort of had maybe some chips and Coke. He's a 13-and-a-half-month-old baby. Mm. Like, it's not the diet of champions. You forget how young he is. That's when you said how old he was. I'd forgotten actually how young. Yeah, he literally was a toddler. Yes, there's a pig's head there on the lawn, and the police said pretty quickly it wasn't connected. And the reason being, they got to the house and said, well, the back door was bolted from the inside. No one ever questioned that that had ever been unbolted. The window that the pig's head hit, if you could imagine your regular window, the pig's head hits the middle of the window, it smashes it, but all the glass at the bottom of the window is still jagged. And it was a relatively small, you know, it's the size of a head, the, the hole in the window, slightly bigger than the size of your head. So it would have been incredibly difficult to, well, impossible to climb through that window without smashing out the glass at the bottom of the window, without leaving fabric or blood or something on the window from cutting yourself or, or leaving threads on the window as you climb through it, from leaving footmarks on the weatherboards as you climb up to get in. The other side thing is that on the inside of that window, there were these curtains and drapes. Just beyond those was an old speaker, you know, the stereo speaker that stood, you know, three foot high. And that was right inside the window as well. And on top of that with little, some sort of little toy figures or something like that. And they were all still upright and there was dust around them. If anyone attempted to push through that window, they're going to hit the curtains, knock the, the stereo speaker and the little figures will fall and you could see, oh, there was, you know, there'd be a dust mark where, around that. It was pretty quickly apparent you couldn't get through that window. So the only way that therefore the, the pig's head was relevant to that is if someone had a key to go through the front door because none of the other windows were disturbed, none of the other doors were disturbed. The other one was, as I say, locked and bolted at the back. There were three pit bulls who had dogs in the backyard. Getting over the back fence, no. So police were pretty sure, certain, from the first day that it didn't look likely. But So what happened is Greg came in and said, they're throwing a pig's head, you know, this is hours later when he's, they've finally gone to the police station and said that it's Kenny Penfold, it's even Penfold, it's the Penfolds. But the problem for police had at that point was Belinda's arrived with him saying, he's done it, he's done it, he's, he's hurt Jaden. So she's, she's blaming Greg, she's saying Greg's done yep, it. Yep, when they first arrive at the police station, say, uh, and because she's out of it as well, she's blind. Right. And, she's, and he's told her stories during the night. So when, he, when she was out at the pub, They've rung him to check on the kids and, and at one stage he was talking to Katie. He said, oh, he burned his bum and he's in the... I had to take him to the hospital. Oh, but he's all right, he's all right. And it was sort of selling this idea that something had happened to him, but they rang and got cleared up. No, he's all right. But Greg eventually picked Belinda up from the pub. She was at one stage going to stay there in the back of a panel van of another guy up there. And he's gone up to collect her. And when he's gone up to collect her, he's taken another can of Jack Daniels and Coke. And... That, to me, was always really significant, that he took more drinks yeah. for her. And 
the reason I thought it was significant is because he wanted to keep her drunk. He wanted her to be more drunk because my belief was accorded with what was put in the police prosecution case was that he wanted her to wake up having been so drunk and finding him, Jaden. well, initially I think he wanted her to wake up and find him dead in his bed and think, what have I done when I've been drunk? And uh, he's arrived home and while he was out, someone's thrown a pig's head at the window and he's thought, he's come home and found this smashed window, the pig's head there, and realised the whole story had to change. Wow. Okay. That's your theory. Yeah, well, so, I mean, I've probably gone about it in a convoluted way of explaining how it happened, but no, no. what I think happened is that in the afternoon, and this was sort of the version put by police, yeah, it was, it was thoroughly sort of examined, but he's working on his car in the afternoon. Greg sort of had indicated a couple of versions that would suggest that when he was out working on the car, something's happened, the car's come off the jack or, or something like that, and he's broken his arm, broken Jaden's arm. Now, at that point, there was a choice to be made of taking him to the hospital, taking him and getting cared for, or not. And you take him to get cared for, he was fearful that he would be in trouble himself, you know, what sort of neglect and what abuse, or, and he didn't. On the, in, you know, in my opinion, he then, he drugged him to quieten him down because this was a... This was a severe break. The arm was broken right through and there was just tape put on it to try and split it, which wouldn't have done anything other than cause more pain when the drugs wore off because the bones were rubbing against one another. Yeah, so he's drugged and then Greg's gone back to playing his Nintendo. Baby's woken up. Now, I think that my view is that what's occurred then, he was known, there were witnesses that had him drive out before midnight around to Belinda's house. People definitely had him leaving his house, definitely had him going around to Belinda's house and pulling up there. And I think that he then put Jaden in his bed in Belinda's house, back in his own bed in, at Belinda's house, with the intent that she would wake up the next morning and he's there. Because then what happened was he was planning to then come back, go and collect her, give her some drinks. They drop into the house. So she remembers going to the house, him saying, yeah, yeah, remember we went to the house you were drunk, but you fell asleep. With it. And then, but you said you wanted to go home, so we grabbed. We had to take Jaden and take you home. So remember, you picked up Jaden, and we picked him up and went there. I think that was what occurred. That was what he was thinking. So I think what happened then is he gets home and he finds the pig's head there, and her, and realizes this is his big out. Yeah, like this is better than his first plan. So he gathers Belinda up. They, they, he picks her up there takes her back around to her place, she falls asleep again. He then leaves and goes around to the Penfolds and that's when there's this two-hour window where it's like, why didn't you report him missing? Why, When you arrive home, if all of this occurred, yeah. when Belinda was with you, why didn't you ring the police? Why didn't you immediately alert anyone if you, as you said, left him on the couch? And he said he thought it was the Penfolds and he, he said he went round there to Yvonne's. Yvonne was his ex-girlfriend and there'd been a feud between them. Yvonne Penfold, who is Kenny Penfold's sister. Yes, yeah, so Kenny comes home. Kenny had been in Queensland, he'd been in and out of jail. He's a very petty criminal but sort of one of those roguishly funny characters that turned up. And 
he came back and found out that, you know, there was this boyfriend of hers and they, they were always playing pranks. And Greg had spray painted a pentangle on a car at one point. He'd come around to her house and because they'd broken up, he thought that she was seeing other guys, notwithstanding the fact that he was seeing Belinda. And he's rammed her car down the driveway. He's driven in the car and his, his car and pushed her car all the way down the drive to the back of the drive. So Kenny thought, that's not on. He's not hurting my sister like that. And working off the pentangle thing, um, he thinks, we'll send a message to him. We'll throw a pig's head through his window. And most people don't have access to a pig's head, but um, they had a couple of pigs that they'd kept for pets to rear to then eat. And they'd recently decided to kill uh, the pet. It was a black and white pet. They were Collingwood fans, and they called it Darren Mullane after the Collingwood player. And they butchered him out in the, um, the bush, and the friend Tubby had forgotten to bring the head. They wanted to keep the head, so they brought the head back. He went back out and got the head, and the head was sitting on their veranda in a bucket of water. On this night, they decided, yeah, let's grow the pig's head. Uh, he thought that, that they were the ones that had thrown the pig's head and were responsible. They had thrown the pig's head. He was absolutely right to assume it was them. Um, but I think that what he did was go around and get, um, when he's um, dropped Belinda home, he's taken Jaden out of his bed, put him put him back in the car, in the boot. Oh, my gosh. Driven back to his house, grabbed up the stuff, either from Belinda's or from his own place, the exact stuff that she'd brought with him that day, uh, in the plastic bag, grabbed a crowbar, a sleeping bag, driven out to Blue Rock Dam and disposed of the body, throwing it into the lake, uh, Blue Rock Dam. So Jaden, you think, was deceased when he put him into Belinda's bed? Yeah. How did Jaden die? I'm confused about... He died of a massive skull fracture. Oh, my God. And uh, that was after having the the, the broken arm and the, and the drugs. So I think he's woken up from the drugs and was in severe pain and with the screaming and crying. Greg's either lost it and thrown him against the heater potentially and then possibly finished him or or finished doing what he was doing with um, a crowbar. He had massive fractures to the back of the skull, at the base of the skull, and it was consistent with uh, either a crowbar um, slamming the head. It was like a car accident sort of force. It's just awful. I mean, there's, there's no pretty way of describing it. It was an awful, painful death that he died. He, he's first of all broken his arm and then he's been smashed. Knee. And the thought was that it, I, I don't know what his, what his logic was. If, you know, and I'm working on the, the assumption he did it. I think he did it. It's a personal opinion but it's also the, was the prosecution opinion and, um, and eventually the coroner, after multiple uh, attempts at a full inquest, determined not that Greg had been involved in the murder or was convicted of the murder, but he was um, responsible for disposing of the body, which was a, a strange sort of legal way of navigating that. He was pulled over by police at one point. There was an urban sort of myth that he was sopping wet and the police did nothing about it. Not true. Is that not true? He did have his wallet was sopping wet when they found it the next day. When they came, police came to his house the next day, right? They found six hundred dollars uh, under his mattress, laid out flat to dry. Though it was wet and it was being laid out flat to dry, his wallet was sopping wet, such that the the cards and that that are inside your wallet, the ink on them, it all run. And and um, so he was. Uh, he was definitely wet. There's every chance, I think, that at that point when he was pulled over by the same policeman that he went in to, to admit, to, to, to report the missing child um, hours later, Farnham Molesworth, was um, 
I think Jaden was in the boot of the car at that point when he was pulled over and he was on his way out to the dam to dispose of him. We'd like to thank our generous patrons, including Beck Allen, Laura, Ashy Girl, Melissa, Tony Lee Christie, Natalie Ma, Emma Haves, and Annalise Kay. You can become a patron of Australian True Crime at patreon.com forward slash Pod and be the first to know who the exciting guests will be on our next live stream and how you can secure your tickets. There's a link in the show notes to this episode and on our Facebook page. Coming up, we learn the truth about Kenny Penfold and the Pig's Head Gang. But first, journalist and author of the Jaden Lesky murder, Michael Gleason, takes us back to June 1997, when young mum Belinda Murphy is confronted with the worst scenario imaginable. She called her boyfriend, Greg Demazovich, several times throughout the night to check on her baby son, Jaden, whom he'd failed to deliver to her sister Katie's home as planned. Every time she spoke to him, he told her something different. At one point, he said Jaden had burnt himself on the heater and was at the hospital. Panic-stricken, Belinda insisted on going home, but her sister Katie suspected it was one of Greg's weird jokes and called him back. He told Katie it was, in fact, a joke, that Jaden was fine and he was in bed asleep. Finally, at 2am, Belinda asked Greg to please come and pick her up from Ryan's hotel in Terralgan. Michael tells us what happened next. So I think he's come back to Belinda and said, I lied to you, I lied to you. He wasn't in the hospital, he's missing, it's bloody the Penfolds, and they've gone around to the police station to report it. And the police, their one big error that they made, the police, was a forgivable one in the circumstances, but still an error that hurt the case, was that they didn't send a police officer at that point around to the Penfolds and check if Jaden was there or check anything, you know, just immediately act on what he was saying. The reason... Part of the reason they didn't, one is resourcing in a small country town on a Sunday morning. The second is he gave them so many different, like there were so many inconsistencies of what was going on. Now, hang on, he was with you, you left him on a thing, you said he burnt his bum, you said he was there, she's saying you did it. They just wanted to keep them all there and separated and explaining their stories. And it was later that they did go around, but uh, couldn't find anything there. What did they do initially? I mean, they know there's a baby missing. What, what did police do first? Well, they rang first? I mean, it goes up the chain to a superintendent and then the, the homicide squad's called in immediately because it is a missing person like that, so it does fall under them as a potential homicide as well. So Roland Legg oh, yeah. was caught. He was the, his crew was the one on duty and they were called out and went straight there. And forensically, they, they have people immediately, you know, they seal off Greg's house forensics come down they go through the whole house they're examining everything from then i mean they're dealing with a missing child they're not dealing with a murder and there's public appeals and they're talking to the families and they're trying to work out they're trying to get the clearest story they can and part of the problem with that is belinda's still blind drunk so she was there for a long time sobering up before they could start to really get stories straight and they had to keep them separated through that to make sure there was no pollution of the stories and he was kept there for a long time as well trying to explain things and one of the other key moments was that the pig's head gang Kenny Penfold and that when they're about to throw this pig's head they've gone around there and I think this is after Jaden's already off at Belinda's but they're watching Greg's place and Greg's car's backed into the driveway which is unusual they say and Greg comes out to the bin a couple of times and he puts some stuff in and they find the police check the bin the next day and there's t- tissues 
in the bin that have been sort of had the ends twirled and tightened as though they've been used to pack into an ear or a nose and they had Jaden's blood on them and Greg was questioned about this repeatedly and he and particularly on that first day and he, he gave multiple answers as to why and he, it was always vague it was always sort of oh maybe it was this or maybe it was that and he felt he this the story sort of fell to as his consistent th- thought on that then was that he had a scab on his lip and the dogs had licked the scab off to me that never made sense but that was the story he went with particularly because it was you know the tissue was like it was packed up a nose or an ear and t- you know squeezed up like that so they then saw him leave and there was something that they also, the police also were able to rule out the pig's head gang pretty quickly when they did go around because they, they spoke to them. And Kenny says, yeah, yeah, we were sitting there and I had to, uh, you know, we're watching and, and, you know, I get a bit anxious, Mr. Legg, when I'm, when I'm watching the house. And, and so they're on the railway side, up, straight opposite Greg's house is a railway line. And in the railway siding, they're sitting there squatting down watching, they're parked up the road, they're watching Greg's house. He leaves. Kenny gets a bit, excited and anxious at this moment and needs to go to the toilet. So he drops his pants and does a poo. And as you do when you find yourself in that situation, had nothing to wipe his backside with, so tore the pocket off his shirt and used that. And the next day, he took police down to show them the said turd, as he called it, and uh, verify his story. They also, after throwing the pig's head, They've then run off up the street and multiple cars and people have seen him and a mate running up the street, not with a baby in their arms. They were throwing rocks. They threw rocks at a kid, a couple of kids that were walking along, you know, ran up to one of them and go, boo, in, in their face. People driving along saw them running around. So they're sort of, they're not behaving like people that have just stolen a kid. Not that I know particularly how people do behave when they've stolen a kid, but I wouldn't imagine it's like that. Uh, because they they don't have him with them and all of those stories were consistent so it just for me it was always that idea that you could eliminate them pretty reasonably even though it was ridiculous yeah even during the trial Kenny had the air of a bloke who was sort of enjoying the process really for once he wasn't the guy in trouble Except, except, as soon as his face got put on TV, a warrant was issued for him in Queensland and he was subpoenaed. He was extradited to Queensland to face charges that That were outstanding. That doesn't surprise me. That does not surprise me. He was always giving interviews out the front, wasn't he, on the street and had plenty of time for the journos and... Oh, yeah. Oh, he loved it. The notoriety and a bit of celebrity to it. And look, they're all unemployed. They're just wandering around town. This is exciting. They've got nothing else they're doing. They just sit around. As he said, he smokes cones every morning when he gets up. That is just the, the culture that you're living in of multiple blokes living in a share house, smoking dope, doing pills, minor burglary, minor crimes, and that's your life. It's a miserable yeah, existence. Yeah, you've got a pig's head in a bucket on your veranda and you've thought of something to do with it. Great. Yeah, and the rest of the pig was hanging in the shower. After you've killed the pig, you have to hang yeah. it to bleed it, and you do that. He was hanging it over the shower recess. And it was at his house because his sister wouldn't let him, let him hang it into her. Good on her. Good on yeah. She's a lady. Yeah, yeah. You know, clearly Belinda Murphy was a victim of this scenario and her baby was murdered. It's a hideous yeah. price to pay for being immature and making a bad decision and, and, and choosing the, the wrong babysitter. Yeah. You know, at what point did she – so we know that 
the first morning at the police station, she's saying he did it, he did it. But then after that, she's not sure what happened. I, you know, I remember she was just very confused. Her boyfriend's saying, no, he didn't. She didn't seem to know what had happened for a long time. But what was the journey from there? Yeah, until- that's a really good question because she, she became also one of those characters that people struggled with. Yeah. They struggled with the idea of Maui. They struggled with the idea of, of what you would do in those circumstances. And to that extent... There was a connection with the sort of Azaria case because yeah. it, it, Azaria was the, the, you know, obviously is the biggest sort of mystery case, murder mystery case that we've had in Australia. But this at the time was, you know, the closest thing we'd had to. It was on the front page every day for a month. It was captivating people. Even, I mean, when you talk about other cases, I, it makes me think of the Madeleine McCann case yeah. because people are so judgmental about the fact that the, those children were left alone in their room. And, I mean, these people are doctors. Yeah. So it can hit any socioeconomic spectrum when we talk about the judgment of victims and victims' parents. And it's not just the judgment of what she did the night that he went missing. It's the judgment of how she behaved afterwards. Yeah. And people looking at it and going, well, why is she doing that? I wouldn't do that. How could you do that? How could you do that? Yeah. And I think it is a, you know, walk a mile in my shoes type moment of how yeah. can you judge that? I mean, she was yeah. an emotionally immature woman and dealing with the yeah. idea, you know, dealing with the fact that her son's missing. And like she even yes. spoke, when I spoke to her, you know, she was sitting there and she said yeah. it only became real to her when she saw it on telly which is sort of this, you know, flip of normal logic that TV feels unreal. But to her, the fact that he was missing only really hit home to her when she's got home from the police station and the TV's on and there's her baby looking back at her on the the screen. But she was a, a vexing sort of figure for the police and the public because she vacillated. She was with him. And the police really didn't hide from the fact that from the start he was the main suspect. He was the last person to see him alive, known person to see Jaden alive. So of course, what does he know? What does he know? And there was there were doubts about his story, you know, these two hours missing. And so police were suspicious of him and made it pretty clear from the outset. And against that, you've got a mother that's accepting him back into her house. Like she left the police station believing he'd done it. And within hours that night, he turned up at the house and they're back together again. And then they've left Maui, they've gone down to Melbourne, they're on a shopping trip, they've gone to see a lawyer. They're going, It's like, wouldn't you stay where you in town where your baby is? And that's the, that was the, they were the questions people are asking. And not unfairly in, in a lot of ways. I mean, you, you do wonder. You did wonder then, what, yeah. what are you doing? Would I behave like that? Would, but over the time, she fell in and out with Greg. And ultimately later she was, I mean, as of now, she's, you know, like I haven't spoken to her for a long time, but certainly by the time different inquests came through and, and afterwards um, she was, yeah, annoyed with herself for that. Uh, but she also, you know, because she, she then eventually believed that he was responsible. But I think you also got to remember there was a, there's an element of guilt that you'd carry as a, a parent for having... Was I responsible? I left him with him. I, if I accept that he did it, I have to accept that I might have done something to contribute to it. And that's not fair, but it's how you would feel, I think. I think it's how she felt. Yeah, I'd want to believe anything else. I'd want to believe anything but that yeah. myself, I think. Yeah, well, did I deliver him up yeah. to this moment? Not that it was, I think that at any stage I don't believe it was a deliberate act. 
I think it was everything that flowed, everything flowed from an accident. All of this flowed from an accident in the backyard that cover up and cover up. But it's still, I've left him there. I feel guilty. Um, and the easier way to not feel guilty is to think that he didn't do it and he was still missing. I remember that horrible day when his remains were found. Yeah. Can you tell us about that? Because that's, of course, when we found out about the, the little arm. Yeah, and we found out in a case of extraordinary twists, this was an extraordinary twist because it was New Year's Day, 98, and the body, uh, so people were down at Blue Rock Dam, which is a beautiful big dam outside Maui, and it's really large, deep water supply. And some people picnicking down there saw something in the water. Turns out it was Jade. The body had, had risen. But the pathology says basically there was a there would have been a 24-hour window to see this, to, to, to get him at that point because he'd been in really – the water was about 8 or 9 degrees from the time, from winter, and it had just warmed enough because it's a very deep dam, so it's, the water is cold, and, and, and the cold water had just warmed enough that the body had started to decompose and oxidise in rising, had pressed against the stitching of the sleeping bag that it had been contained in, and fish sort of nibbling at the sleeping bag as well. The stitching had come apart, he'd popped up. But once it had risen, and he'd risen to the surface, he wouldn't have lasted there a long time before decomposing quite rapidly because of the change of temperatures and whatever. So it's not a busy place out there so you could go easily could have happened that it was midweek and it popped up and then dropped again and no one saw it but it just happened that there were people there that day and they saw him pulled him out and they said because of the cold and the composition they were able to identify him very very quickly they had already declared that they were treating it as a murder and that they believed that it was a murder inquiry not a missing persons any longer this only further that Greg was already on remand for it. He would already been charged. So they monitored him in on remand when the news broke that the body had been found and he um he collapsed in, in prison on that day. So Greg was on remand for quite a while then for the entire sort of period of the trial and the lead up. It was slightly longer than Jaden was alive for, so it was over over thirteen and a half months. Do you know where he was? Was he in the map or was he in like a proper jail? Was he in a prison? Yeah, no, he was in a proper. But he was in a, a more isolated area for protection. And, uh, yeah, at the time the bigger killers, Camilleri and Beckett, were in there as well. And um, so, you know, those sorts of pretty nasty places. He was just known as Moe in jail there. But there, amongst others that were like, you know, pedophiles and things like that that needed protection from others. And, um, yeah, he formed some uh, close relationships with some in there. Afterwards, it emerged that there'd been three prisoners that had made statements saying that he'd confessed to them inside. And two of them, I don't, don't put any story in. I think that they were opportunists that heard that another prisoner had said something to police and given statements to police about Greg doing it. And they thought that they'd get in on the action and broker a deal and whatever, because they didn't really say anything that they couldn't have learnt elsewhere. But one of them, I do put some story in because police were in there for something else. And they were talking to this guy and they said, well, why haven't you spoken to him? Greg confessed to him. So they went to this guy. So he hadn't come to them. They went to him and he said, oh, yeah, this is what happened, that he told them how the baby had he'd broken the arm in the... And basically told the story. Of, and the police sort of had a ring of truth around it. But he was prepared to make a statement. At that point, he was due to be released anyway. And it, it was sort of like... I was, was more persuaded by his story because he didn't actually gain anything from it. There was some suggestion that his sister got a housing commission place out of it, access to a housing commission flat out of it, which, which might be true. But... I don't think he personally benefited from it. Anyway, as it goes, it wasn't 
presented by the prosecution during the case because they felt that it come up late and it look opportunistic. And I don't think they felt they needed it either. They thought they were pretty had a pretty strong case. It was examined at the coroner's inquest. After the acquittal, there was initially a, uh, a dismissive sort of one-page brief from the coroner just saying, yes, this child died of blah. And there were representations made about that, that it's not right. Anyway, eventually there was it was agreed that there would be a full inquest. And it was resisted because it, sort of saying, well, the courts have dealt with this. But then the courts haven't dealt with it because in the end, no one is guilty of this. So how did the child die? Who was responsible? And there is a problem for the court system then because you then raise the idea of holding the court open to ridicule. If the coroner turns around and says, I oh, know, Greg did it. Well, what does that say about the jury and the jury system that allowed him to be convicted, uh, acquitted? Well, I mean, personally, I don't have a problem with that. I think it's the system working correctly when you can have 12 people having to unanimously agree beyond reasonable doubt that he did it. There is a different level of weighting and, and test in the coroner's court. It's not beyond reasonable doubt. It's less than that, but it is more than balance of probabilities. You have to weigh the level of the crime against the level of doubt. So if I think that you probably ate some of the cake in the fridge, you know, if there's two of us in the house and I know I didn't eat it and there's a bite missing, I'm pretty sure it was you. But if Michael, if there's six of us in the house, it was probably me, to be honest. <laughs> just being honest. It's somewhere yeah. between just more than likely and beyond reasonable doubt. And... Uh, in the end, you know, the, all of the, a lot of the stuff was, was trawled over again and um, the coroner, as I said, eventually came to the conclusion Greg was the last person involved. He was, he believed, responsible uh, for disposing of Jaden and made no, no finding against him for being responsible for killing Jaden. And one of the things about the reason for being responsible for the disposal is there are a couple of elements that the police found really compelling with when when Jaden was found and what he was found with. Roland Legg was always drawn to the fact that when they found Jaden, there was a he was inside a sleeping bag that had been tied to a crowbar, which was a crowbar that had been in the back of Greg's house. And there were multiple sort of photographs and evidence from people saying it was, was his crowbar. But along with that, there was a, a, the plastic bag, a plastic bag with some clothes and nappies in it that were Jaden's and they were the, the exact things that Belinda had brought over to Greg's place that day. And Roland was always persuaded by the significance of this because he said, well, no one else knew what she brought to the house that day. And therefore, if she was returning home, what she would take with her to go home again. And so he found that why would anyone else gather up the stuff? And it was disposed with the, with the body that was thrown in the lake. I mean, it's it's hard to accept that we could live in a society that doesn't want to pursue the question of how did a baby end up at the bottom of a dam with a broken arm. And skull fractures. That's hard to accept. Yeah. Damazovich got found not guilty, but then forever, everyone will probably think he did it anyway. He's arguably served a sentence greater than a lot of people that, that had he come in and said on the first day, I did it, it was an accident, was convicted of manslaughter and served seven years and no notoriety, no pressure. He's probably suffered more than no, any of those people because there is, an, a, there is a, na- a stench to his name. It's a uh, distinctive name and it's a stench that will be attached to it for good. There will be people that will always remember that name. 
Thank you for downloading this episode of Australian True Crime, made in association with the ACAST Creator Network. Thank you to Julie Reynolds at Audio Lemonade for editing assistance, and thank you to the following patrons. Jude Whelan, Jacinta, Anisha Chavda, Gillian Sturk, Peyton Matheson, Sharon Power, Yadi and Matt Hollands, Sabui Safa, and Sally. Just Sally. Please take care out there. We'll be back next week. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. As promised, I am thrilled to announce that our tickets for Australian True Crime Live are now available. Join me in Sydney, Brisbane and or Melbourne this July. You can come to all three if you want. These tickets are expected to go very quickly, so be sure to secure yours by visiting the link in our podcast bio or you can head over to the Australian True Crime Facebook page. There'll be a nice link there for you. Update for Brisbane Australian True Crime fans. Brisbane is almost fully sold out for our live show. If you've been a listener for any length of time, you'll know how passionate I am about true crime stories from Australia. I'm looking very forward to an incredible evening together with you, sharing these captivating tales. We will have great guests as well, so, you know, we love a Q&A. If you've ever come along to an Australian true crime live gig, you'll know we love a Q&A with our guests. Don't miss out. Book your tickets today, and I'll see you in July for a memorable night out.